So we have a lot to do on disinformation, and I think that's enough, but it's a very real problem. And then the national security issues that people worry about. Should AI systems be able to advise terrorists on how to build biological weapons? Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Join host Sanjay Puri as he explores the dynamic and developing world of artificial intelligence governance. Each episode features deep dives with global leaders at the forefront of regulating AI responsibly, tackling the challenges using AI can bring about head-on and enabling balance without hindering innovation. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Artificial intelligence stands at the forefront of technological evolution, with experts predicting that it could add trillions of dollars to our GDP, but it could also negatively impact our workforce and national security. So how do we regulate it without stifling innovation? Our podcast features insights from various perspectives, from industry leaders and government officials to advocacy groups. Together, they address pivotal questions that are needed to create practical legislation. I'm very excited to have Professor Stuart Russell with us today. Stuart is a professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley, He was also the chair of the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Program. Stewart's written the standard textbook on artificial intelligence, which is used in more than 1,500 universities and 135 countries, but it has also been translated in 20 languages. He is considered one of the global thought leaders in AI. I invited him on the show as it is very important to get different perspectives towards framing AI legislation. We also wanted to get perspective from academics and safety experts. Welcome, Stuart. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Regulating AI podcast. Nice to be here. Stuart, as you know, in the past few months, you've seen the Biden executive order on October 30th, and now recently you have the EU AI Act, which has come together at a political forum, which will go into action in 2025. Can you give us your perspective on both those legislations? Sure, yeah. I think the executive order is just that, right? It's not legislation, and there are very strict limits on what you can do with an executive order. But one of the things that they've done is to require basically information from AI system developers so that they have to register their models, provide information about the training of those models when those models exceed a certain size and training cost. So that's a good start, right? You can't regulate anything unless you know that it exists. It also recommends that these systems be tested and evaluated by third parties, which is certainly better than nothing. But so far, there's been lots of testing and lots of evaluation of these systems, and they have failed many of those tests, but they've still been released. And all of that testing and evaluation does not seem to have really provided much in the way of safety because it turns out that all of these systems are very easy to subvert. So they can easily be told to provide all kinds of answers that they're not supposed to provide about how to be a terrorist, about how to break into the White House, about how to kill yourself, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, I would say these are fairly weak requirements. So we're going to need some real legislation to build on top of the executive order. And there's a boatload of proposals in Congress, and I'm not really familiar with all of them, but some of them seem to have real teeth and to be quite sensible. And then the AI Act is actually much further along. It's been in the works since, I think, maybe 2019 or so. I was a consultant to help one of the very earliest 
drafting processes, and it was a mess when it started. Mm. It was very naive in the sense that it assumed that all AI systems were just knowledge-free, supervised learning systems. So basically, you could replace AI with linear regression in all of those documents and not change the meaning of anything. So we've gone through a lot of evolution with the ACT. I've also spent a lot of time working on the definition of AI that's the foundation of the act. What is an AI system? And the original definition of that was wrong. They claimed that they got it from OECD, which claimed that they got it from my textbook. But in fact, my textbook never had that definition and it doesn't work for many AI systems. In fact, it would have excluded large language models. It would have defined them as not AI systems. So ChatGPT wouldn't be an AI system, which obviously is ridiculous. There were many countries who wanted to define AI systems as only systems that learn after deployment, that continue to adapt, which almost no AI systems do. So that would actually exclude almost everything that people call AI system from regulation. So we've steered through all of these potential disasters, and I think we finally ended up with something that isn't too bad. It's not perfect, but it's not too bad. It has a real ban on impersonation. It has lots of requirements for fairness and measures that have to be taken to prevent bias in dozens of clauses of of the act. And I think the main, besides the sort of cross-application bans, like the ban on impersonation, the ban on social scoring and so on, What the act does is to say, look, if you're on a high-risk application where the operation of the AI system could impinge on people's safety or their fundamental rights, then you have to take serious measures to prevent those risks. And those measures would depend a little bit on what sector you're in, if you're giving medical advice or legal advice or financial advice. But it also means that things like social media platforms will be regulated under that rule because social media platforms can manipulate your opinions. They affect your freedom of thought, freedom of information, which are fundamental rights, and they would be subject to the same kinds of regulations as other high-risk systems. And then the last part, in some sense, shows the difficulty of regulating because when they started the act, there were no foundation models that were out there operating in the market. There was no chat GPT. In fact, generative AI wasn't even the commonly used phrase at that time. As those technologies came on stream, first of all, the image generators and then the big text models like ChatGPT, they found that they had to revise a lot of their rules and even definitions to accommodate that. And at the same time, because people saw huge profits in these systems, there were huge lobbying efforts to exclude them from regulation. So at one point, for example, there was a clause in the act that basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically it said, for the purposes of this act, a general purpose AI system, meaning an AI system that can do two or more things, shall not be considered an AI system, which most people (laughs) sounds completely bizarre, but that's what the companies were able to insert into the act by extensive lobbying and so on. And then the parliament pushed back, and then France and Germany, because they had national champions, they pushed back again and tried to make various exclusions that would allow their companies to operate without regulation, particularly if they use an open source model. Right now, we have this strange situation actually in the act where if you make your system open source, meaning that lots of people can copy it and misuse it, then it's Mm -hmm. not regulated. But if you're sensible and cautious and keep your system secure and private, then you are regulated which is sort of weird. It's like saying, yeah, we should, you know, if you have open source uranium enrichment, then that's just fine. 
go ahead, please. <laughs> but if you're a serious company that wants to keep it secure and safe, then we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. So this is a very difficult situation as a result of a really unpleasant political and commercial process that led to this compromise. But I would just want to make one more comment mm-hmm. on both of these acts. So neither of them actually address the real question that we've face in AI, right? The real question we face, which is a very difficult one for regulators, is how do we retain control forever over systems that are eventually going to be more powerful than human beings? And neither of them really make a start on that problem. Yeah. Stuart, you raised uh, multiple different threads. And if you don't mind, can I pick on some of those points? Because there's at least five or six that are very interesting. And I'm not going to pick them in any order because my memory is not that great. Now, you talked about in the EU Act, this whole open sourcing, which you made a very relevant point. Now, is it because France has companies like Mistral and others, and that's been the push that you see? Uh, That's why open source, if you have an open source and something bad happens and you're cool, there's no regulation around it. Is that the reason why some of this stuff has happened? Yeah, I think that's, I think both uh, Germany has Aleph Alpha, France has Light On and Hugging Face, and they feel exactly. this would be good for those companies. So a follow-on question to that, I take it then you are against open sourcing of LLMs. Is that an assumption that correct or wrong on my part? I think it's not black and white. Right? And I think a lot of this okay. a lot of this discussion, particularly in the media, presents it as are you for open source or are you against open source? And mm-hmm. the pro open source is always, oh, think about the little guy, the little countries, the poor people who want to use AI, but Mm-hmm. Watch. It's very democratizing and so on and so forth. Yeah. But we don't talk about open source medicines that you shouldn't have to regulate medicines if people are open sourcing the medicines or, or the enrichment of uranium or whatever. And the fact is that the efforts that people have made to make these systems safe, to stop them from answering questions about how to build biological weapons, to stop them from advising you on committing suicide and so on. All of those efforts can be undone very easily with an open source system. We can strip off all the so-called guardrails in a tenth of a second. So another thing is that suppose we have systems that start to exhibit really bad behavior, like breaking Mm -hmm. into computer systems, replicating themselves, and so on. You would want to be able to turn those systems off before the problem gets much, much worse. So how do we do that with open source systems when there's 100,000 copies all over the world? I think there's a phrase, so Elizabeth Seeger from Cambridge has a phrase, irreversible proliferation. This is what we really mean by open source AI. So if we could build in a non-removable off switch that the regulator could operate remotely, if we could require that every copy of these systems self-register automatically so the regulator knows where they are and can disable them when appropriate, then that might make it a little better for the regulatory and safety point of view. But that's pretty difficult. But let me pick up another point. As I said, you brought some very fundamental points. You said neither of these, one is obviously the executive order, which is not a law, and the, or the EU Act addressed the fundamental issue of AGI, correct? You said they really are not addressing that. Now, I've had many senators, congressmen, and we've had many discussions on this podcast. I can tell you from an American standpoint, and we're going to have some people from the EU too, what they're saying is, at least in the United States, we are not going to have a comprehensive legislation this year around. 
we are in an election cycle and the whole thing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. It's going to be incremental. If you had your wish and people and some of the folks also argue that we don't have AGI and we don't know when AGI is coming. What would you have recommended for EU AI? And what would you have recommended for this? If I were to take your message to the members of Congress that we deal with, what would you have liked? Or what would you like to see happen as far as AGI is concerned in these bills? Yeah, so I take the point that comprehensive legislation in the U.S. is unlikely. But I do think it would be a good idea to have some basic rules. For example, a ban on impersonation of human yeah. beings, a ban on deep fakes showing real individuals without their permission, and various other kinds of labeling requirements for mm -hmm. artificial generated images and video and sound. So those are really simple. I don't think it's a good idea to fold them into something comprehensive. I think that these right. are just basic in some sense. They need to be amendments to the constitution almost because they're right. so fundamental to our rights as human beings. What I would like to see as a first step for the long-term questions around how do we control AGI is regulation that puts the onus on the developer to demonstrate that their systems have certain safety properties. So let's pick just one for sake of argument. We want to be sure that the system cannot replicate itself onto another computer system. And that's a very reasonable request. And if you asked any of the companies developing these systems, particularly as we move toward what they call agents, which can actually mm -hmm. take action in the real world and said, okay, can you provide that assurance, they would say, sorry, no, we can't provide any assurance whatsoever. And that's unacceptable. So if a nuclear power plant operator, you said, oh, can you provide some assurance that your system won't have a meltdown, at least in expectation for the next million years? And if they said, sorry, we can't provide any quantitative assurance of any kind, then you would say, sorry, that's unacceptable and you can't build and operate your nuclear power plant. So that we've been calling this red lines or, or behavioral red lines that certain behaviors by AI systems are unacceptable. And the onus is on the developer to provide a proof that the system will not engage in those behaviors under any circumstance. And the purpose of this is twofold, right? One is that we don't want systems doing these things. But the other is in order to comply with that requirement, the companies would have to develop a level of safety engineering that's much more sophisticated than what they currently have. And that is a minimum step towards being able to control really powerful AI systems. Because if we can't stop them from replicating themselves now when they're relatively stupid, yeah. right? how on earth are we going to do it? I mean, saying, oh, we have to wait until AGI exists before we can regulate it. That's completely insane. No one said, oh, you know, build your nuclear power stations and then we'll think about how to regulate them. That's just a completely yeah. non-functioning way of governing. So I'm not sure why we keep seeing that. But if you look at what Sam Altman says and what Mira Murati says, they say it exactly that way. We will develop AGI, then we will figure out how to make it safe. And it's, no, yeah. that's the wrong order. But you also are emphasizing a lot on agents too, because right now... That's where a lot of the focus of a lot of companies is on. Even in OpenAI's uh, developer day, I mean, they made this huge thing about agents and you have baby AGI and many others. And your concern is these agents could take on a life of their own. Is that true, Stuart? Yes, in that they could act in ways that we don't understand and we're not able to control. I'm a little reluctant about the word life of their own because 
that yeah okay so maybe a different they, we don't want to work we don't want to talk about so not life of doing the sense they become powerful how about that they become very yeah. powerful okay yeah and, and this was even before the companies started talking about it as soon as the language models started exhibiting certain levels of capability there were groups out there turning them into agents there's chaos gpd for example who which is mm -hmm. an agent whose goal is to destroy the world and it keeps trying so far it hasn't succeeded but that's its purpose and it's working on it as hard as it can this uh, um, it, it seems self-evident that giving these systems bank accounts and credit cards and access to the internet and email accounts and social media accounts and so on is really asking for trouble so Stuart, when we've had these discussions with entrepreneurs and even with because there is a little bit of a divide they say hey us is driving this innovation and we obviously you don't want to regulate it that we stifle innovation so how does one strike that balance if you know you were to talk to members of congress or some others who are saying hey we don't want to stifle innovation we have existing agencies but the key word that i get from everybody is we already have a lot of laws on the books we have federal trade commission we have equal employment opportunity commission we have department of justice etc what would be your message in terms of innovation regulation the balance here i feel that this notion that there's this dichotomy that the more regulation the less innovation and vice versa i just don't think that's accurate if you think about it if we don't have safety then we're not going to get any of the benefits of innovation right if you think mm. about chernobyl right why do we not to a first approximation the nuclear industry doesn't exist right they have they're not building new nuclear power stations why is that it's because of chernobyl right you can see very clearly in the data that after chernobyl the number of new nuclear power stations basically dropped to zero so chernobyl wiped out the global nuclear industry so if you don't have safety you don't get the benefits and it's also the case that what is a good ai system what is a good nuclear power station it's one that does not harm human beings as a basic minimum putting that requirement on safety actually promotes research on good ai systems and so i buy that there's this trade off between regulation and safety what we actually need to do which has happened in medicine right a, med a medical researcher gets up in the morning and says okay how can i make new medicines or new surgical procedures or whatever that will really help human beings who are ill that's not what the typical ai researcher gets up and says in the morning right yeah. right now they get up and say okay how can i fool people into spending more hours on my platform how can i extract more money from their bank accounts and we we've, we've seen with social media that the consequences of that can be catastrophic yeah no sort the one issue and this is goes to one of your points is ai is evolving nobody knows that better than you you talk about large language models now you talk about multimodal you talk about agents talk about agi how do we put some kind of regulation and i don't know if eu ai act addresses this that can adapt to the rapid pace of technological change and advancements that you're going to see in ai what would you suggest our legislators do in terms is it should be just be an incremental legislation every time something new comes in well i think that's a recipe for disaster because it takes years to get legislation to move on these things. and that's not the way it works in other areas of technology right in a nuclear regulation they don't go back to congress every time there's a minor modification in the design of a nuclear power plant what happened was they 
set up an agency and they gave it rulemaking powers. They gave it the authority to define the requirements that nuclear power plant operators had to satisfy and to authorize changes in design, to authorize changes in operating procedures and so on. And we saw this with the AI Act, that it had to change halfway through because of advances, the emergence of generative AI. And also, I think, the emergence of a supply chain. So the original act did not contemplate that an AI system could be produced in steps by different developers. The whole model was around this one group of white male programmers sitting in a room building the AI system and then releasing it. And that's just not the way things have turned out. And so they've had to understand how do you regulate a whole value chain where there are multiple suppliers. And there are precedents for doing that in the airline industry, for example. The Airbus doesn't make the engines, and nor does Boeing, but there are safety requirements on the engine manufacturers, and then those are incorporated into the overall requirements for the airframe. So those are the kinds of questions that they had to grapple with. And I think they they did a reasonable job, but they had to, it was rushed. It was carried out by people who didn't have enough expertise, politicians by and large, trying to grapple with these issues. And I think that was the mistake. But they have created a Europe-wide AI office. That's another uh, new thing in the act. And so hopefully that will be staffed with people who can understand the technical issues and who can make specific rules for specific sectors and so on. So I think that's what has to happen with artificial intelligence. It's just in the US, it's really difficult to create a new agency because once there's a new agency, this is what I understand from my friends in Congress, then only one committee can have oversight of that agency. And that means all the other committees have got to give up their claims to regulate AI. And that's really difficult. But you would advocate for a separate regulatory agency for regulating AI? I think it's going to happen eventually anyway, because if the technology continues to advance, then eventually it will constitute 80 or 90% of the global economy. So how could you not have a regulatory agency for that technology? Stuart, you talk about nuclear regulatory a lot. Would you use that as a model from some other industry to apply to AI safety? Or or do you have some other models in mind? What would be some good regulatory models to replicate for AI safety? So the example people talk about include, in addition to nuclear, there's aviation and medicines. And I think the key, particularly with medicines and nuclear power, is this requirement that the developer has to provide a proof of safety to the regulator. And for nuclear power, they've defined what they mean by safety. It means two types of events. One one is major core damage, and the other is release of radionuclides, right? These are the two things you want to avoid. And they have to show that the mean time to failure with respect to those events is, initially, I think it was 10,000 years, and now it's 10 million years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that so that proof is basically a gigantic fault tree analysis or something actually more sophisticated than a fault tree analysis, which looks at all of the components in the nuclear power plant. What happens if they fail? Are those failures independent? And how frequently are those components replaced and tested? And what are the operating procedures and what, what are the regular maintenance steps in regular shutdowns and regular testing and all these things? Because without regular maintenance, obviously, you can't show that your system is going to last 10 million years because it's not, and so on. So it's a quite sophisticated mathematical analysis. And the regulator can point to a particular assumption and say, I don't believe that assumption because 
here you've got two components made by the same manufacturer, and you're assuming that they're going to fail independently. But that manufacturer is substandard, and they might both be substandard, and then we'd have a problem. So you've got to then go in and fix it somehow. And with medicines, it's a much shallower, there's a, the level of analysis is not nearly as deep because we don't understand the physics of the human body and how the medicines actually work in many cases. So it's much more empirical. It's, we tried it on a thousand people and nobody died. And therefore the probability of a randomly chosen person dying from this medicine is less than such and such with high confidence. But it's still a mathematical argument that leads to a high confidence prediction of safety for any given individual. We don't have anything like that with what's currently practiced with AI safety in the large language model developers and other generative AI developers, because we haven't the faintest idea how these things work. Stuart, I'm going to just shift to national security for a second, because that's a very big topic right now in Washington. Keeping in mind China and what's happening with US and China relations, etc. How does the government try to balance our national security interests because AI is now heavily being used in the DOD, in space technology, in other places, just being very candid with you in intelligence, etc. And then also ensure this whole idea of global safety of AI. How do you balance that? Because, hey, they said we need every tool possible for a national security. And when national security is concerned, all bets are off here. Well, I hope not all bets are off because human extinction would actually compromise national security as well. And I think that's the important point here is that there has to be a global collaboration on that type of risk because any country that developed an unsafe but very powerful AI system could basically compromise the safety of the entire human race of every other country. And it's really important and I think really difficult to achieve that kind of global agreement. But I would say that the signs of openness from China are quite encouraging. And there's really no reason why we shouldn't collaborate on the safety question. It's in no one's interest for unsafe AI systems to be developed. We collaborate with China on the safety of nuclear missiles because we don't want them to be stolen. We don't want them to go off, be launched accidentally. And so we talk to China about how to make sure these things don't happen. So there's no reason nuclear stuff is even more secret than AI, and yet we managed to have those discussions. And there are ongoing discussions about AI, about lethal autonomous weapons with China. And I think those are also important because we want to avoid accidental warfare, for example, where AI systems start attacking each other because they misunderstand the situation and then that turns into a real war, which would be very bad. So there's a lot of reasons to have these discussions. And I think it's important not to just retreat into a very jingoistic, it's us versus them, anyone who talks to China is a traitor kind of mentality. I think that just doesn't work. And I think you brought up a point, And I think when President Xi and President Biden met in California, AI was one of the things they had a big discussion on, Stuart. And as you said, if we can talk about nukes, we can definitely talk about AI. Just shifting, since you are in an educational institution, I want to ask you, do you think the public is educated or involved in this whole topic of AI safety? Or if they are not, then what can we, when I say we, what can be done about this? Because that's an important, it can't just be a few think tanks, academics and others just who keep beating the drum about AI safety. The public needs to be as concerned too. Yeah. In fact, polls that have been done suggest that the public is 
actually opposed to creating AGI. In fact, they're opposed to going beyond the current capabilities of AI systems by about a four to one majority, which is a bigger majority than you get for almost anything. So that's quite interesting. There's also a big majority against the use of AI in weapons. So I think the public is getting it right. They're also very concerned about loss of jobs, which I think is entirely appropriate. The way the public learns about AI, obviously the news media, and I would say the news media have a mixed record on this. They get a lot of things wrong. And then there's sort of fictional media, so books, television, film, usually science fiction. And the thing that all of them get wrong, both the news media and the fictional media, the creative sector, is that they all talk about the risk coming from machines becoming conscious. There's a very explicit, for example, in Terminator, right, where Schwarzenegger says, yeah, on 2.14 a.m. on February 16th, the Skynet becomes conscious and blah, 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 blah. And this is really harmful because that makes, first of all, it says, okay, the risk comes from something that is completely mysterious, possibly millions of years in the future, where we have no understanding, nobody is working on that, no one's trying to create conscious machines. No one has a way of detecting if we could make conscious machines or has any idea how to do it. It makes it completely fictional. And in fact, that's nothing to do with it. The risk comes from machines that are competent. If I'm playing chess against my laptop, which I do from time to time, and it usually wins, it's not winning because it's conscious. It's winning because it's better at chess than I am. And so if we are worried about losing control to machines, it's because they're better at making decisions than we are in the real world. And it would be, to just give a simple analogy, right? If all the medical dramas, the hospital dramas, the ER, soap operas, if they all said, we can cure the patient as long as we can exorcise the evil spirits, right? If that was the common view of how to be a great doctor was exorcise the evil spirits from the patient. And the medical profession would be like, what the hell is going on? Why are all these film directors and TV directors like, portraying this total nonsense. This is incredibly harmful to public understanding of health, right? But that's exactly the situation that we're in. And it's incredibly harmful to public understanding of what this is about. Looking to make the most out of AI advancements and innovation? Visit regulatingai.org to learn more about how best to optimize the use and integration of AI. And sign up for the Regulating AI newsletter to keep up to date with the latest in AI governance and regulation. So then do you think that there are certain AI applications that should be banned or restricted based on safety concerns, Stuart? I think that's an interesting question. So the AI Act, the European AI Act, bans certain applications of AI as being so high risk that they just shouldn't be done at all. One of the facial recognition in public settings, and they, mm-hmm. I think, very much have their eye on the use of AI in China, which has widespread AI-based facial recognition in public, and also this idea of social scoring that somehow a sort of generalized version of your credit score that would rate all of your behaviors. Did you go and visit your aging aunt frequently enough while she was in hospital? You know, are you teaching your children to respect the Chinese state sufficiently well, et cetera, et cetera? That type of social scoring with very heavy political overtones would obviously be completely unacceptable. So I think We've already got rules around, for example, credit evaluation. When you apply for a credit card, there are certain things they're allowed to ask you and certain things they're not allowed to ask you. And this has been true for decades. So I think 
we actually have a long history to draw on. It's not as if this is the first time AI has ever been used in the real world. It's been used for 50 years in financial applications. And a whole body of rules and law and precedent has been built up around that. And certainly there are things you're not allowed to do in those areas. I think deep fakes are really harmful and deep fakes are real individuals without their permission. I think there's a good argument for saying that should be illegal. AI systems that impersonate, that pretend to be a human being, I think there's a good argument that should be illegal. There should always be disclosure. You should always know if you're interacting with an AI system or a person. Disinformation is a more difficult area. There's, yeah. In the US, you're entitled to lie as much as you want, except in commercial speech. And I think there's a lot of jurisprudence that would say that using AI to lie on your behalf is just an extension of that, so that's also protected speech. But on the other hand, I think it's seriously damaging a really important human right to which we have also subscribed, which is the right to freedom of thought. There is no freedom of thought if you're constantly under attack by false information and you can't actually tell what's true in the real world. And so I think in the near term, there are steps that platforms could take to at least provide people with filters so that they can filter out stuff coming from provably disreputable sources, you know, purveyors of fake information. But we probably need a new information structure, just as in equity markets, for example, there are third-party purveyors of truth, they're called accounting firms, and they decide, is this company actually making the profits that it's claiming to make? And they can say yes, or they can say no. And that's really important. Without that third-party structure, equity markets would fail. Same with real estate markets and notaries and title registries and so on. So the problem is that it took hundreds of years. In the UK, for example, the Notary Society, which is called the Scriveners, Worshipful Company of Scriveners, has been around for about 800 years. So it takes a long time for these kinds of institutional structures to develop and become institutionalized. And then there's always some government involvement in maintaining the standards for, for how those functions work. So we have a lot to do on disinformation, and I think that's enough, but it's a very real problem. And then the national security issues that people worry about. Should AI systems be able to advise terrorists on how to build biological weapons? Mm -hmm. I think people would say, no, shouldn't do that. And that's in the EO2, by the way, executive order that talks about the bioweapons. But you talked extensively about deep fakes. You talked about impersonation. You talked about facial recognition, social scoring. Keeping our time in mind, the last question I have, we are in 2024 now, an election year, a very important election year for many democracies. There are, from what I gather, about 60 democracies that are going to election, especially the United States and many other countries like India and others. Is there a big concern that you have that this election cycle, that AI deepfakes will play a role? Any thoughts from you? They've already played a role in several elections around the world, yeah. causing serious distortions of the outcome in some cases. And I have no doubt that this year, the Republicans are already using deepfakes in their national advertising. So there's no question about whether it's going to happen. It's already happened, and it's going to happen a lot more. But when you look at foreign influence operations, the numbers that I've heard is that what Russia did in 2016 probably cost them at least $20 million, which actually isn't that much money. But to do the same thing now 
would cost a thousand dollars. Wow. And so we can expect them to be doing 20,000 times more disinformation than they were doing then. And I think the situation is already pretty bad with a big chunk of the US population and in many other countries believing largely false narratives about what's happening in the world. And that's going to get worse. And the strange thing, right, is that currently the US is unable to find out if it's under attack by a foreign country. From a disinformation standpoint, Stuart? Yeah. Why is that? I mean, we have intelligence agencies, we have NSA, we have FBI, we have... But they don't have access to the internal data flows of the social media platforms. And in fact, the social media platforms have deliberately removed their own monitoring of this because, as I understand it, what they don't know, they can't be prosecuted for. So mm. they can always say, we had no idea because we disbanded our measuring team and our disinformation team, and our safety team. And so we don't know what's happening on our platform. And they're certainly mm. not revealing that data to the intelligence communities or national governments. One thing I can tell you is on a bipartisan basis, every member that I have spoken to, they said that some legislation on this issue will definitely happen this year. This is one of the things that there is consensus on. This and a couple of other things that will definitely, we will see something happen. So that's just a message that I'm saying, and obviously what you're saying is a little bit scary because we are at least the shiny hill for democracy for the rest of the world, and we want to make sure we protect that. But Stuart, this has been very enlightening, and we definitely want to call you over for round two because there's so many questions that I had that because of paucity of time, I could not. And the thing is, your message will go to not just members of Congress, but their staff, who is also very, that the staff also are very relevant in the discussions. Yeah. And it goes all to state legislatures too. There are 30 states who have some kind of a bill on the AI bill in their legislatures too. So your messages are, whether they like it or not, but your message will go to them. So really thank you for deep insights and thank you for what you do, Stuart. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you, Sanjay. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Regulating AI Innovate Responsibly podcast. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.